0: Word of God, you have done everything. When we were still sinners, you came to save us and having saved us by your grace, you have given us these scriptures as a firm footing and sent your spirit to reveal them to us. We praise you for this lamp that guides our feet and lights our path, amen. Now a reading from the book of Philippians chapter four verses four through nine.
1: While well, he was a graduate student at Harvard in the 1920s, B.F. Skinner became fascinated with the science of human behavior, the subfield of psychology that seeks to answer the questions of, why do we do the things that we do? How much of what we do is conditioned by you know, social norms? How much of it's instinctual? How much of it's part of our nature? Um, and one of his most famous experiments uh, involved creating a box with lights, a speaker, and a response lever. Where he would place a rat inside, and it would be trained to expect a food pellet to drop whenever it pressed a lever in response to external stimuli. So you can imagine the you know, quintessential uh, guy in a white coat lab rat experiment. A light flashes, rat presses a lever, food pops out. Or a sound goes off, rat presses the lever, food pops out. Basic psychology of habit formation there's a cue to some sort of external stimuli, which prompts you to take an action. And once you do it, if that is followed by a reward, it then reinforces that action. Or if it's followed by a punishment, it makes you less likely to repeat that action. And this is why we have a tortured relationship with cake. (laughs) You see, it is both a reward and a punishment. You're in the grocery aisle. You see a piece of yummy red velvet cake. Q. You plan to buy and eat the cake. Have it. The cake will be delicious. Reward. But you get to the checkout aisle, and you see a magazine with a shirtless Chris Hemsworth, <laughs> and you see the heading, How to get Thor's killer abs. Q. I need to go to the gym and not eat cake. Habits. I will look good enough to be worthy to wield the hammer. (laughs) Reward. You see, this is the fundamental human dilemma. Which will win, cake or abs? (laughs) Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) Now, Now, Skinner's discovery, unexpectedly, was that the rat was actually more motivated to press the lever if the food reward was delivered intermittently instead of consistently. Uh, Now, the unpredictableness of this reinforcement is what ended up shaping the rat's behavior more than anything else. And he called this the principle of variable rewards. And he noted that this was the key to kind of hooking the rat. Uncertainty. The possibility of reward is actually more seductive than the guarantee of one. And it turns out it's not that much different for human beings either. In her book, Addiction by Design, NYU professor Natasha Dow notes that slot machines bring in more income in the United States than the movie industry, theme parks, and Major League Baseball combined. By only randomly giving out payouts, they lure us into pulling that lever one more time in hope Of chasing after that reward. Now, while Skinner's work has largely fallen out of favor among psychologists, it has definitely found a home in another industry. In 2009, the core principles of behaviorism were revived by Dr. B.J. Fogg. Known as the millionaire maker of Silicon Valley, uh, Fogg founded Stanford's persuasive design laboratory. And he introduced an applied discipline called behavior design, which is aimed at helping businesses and governments actively influence human decision making. Now, prior to that, Fogg's uh, primary area of research had been in the field of captology, which is essentially how can computers be used to persuade people to change their attitudes or their behaviors. And he developed a model of behavioral change that is actually very simple. It goes like this. Uh, he taught that the desired change can be produced in a person when the following conditions converge at the same time. When a person desires to take a course of action, when, that is when they have motivation, when they are able to take that course of action, they have ability, and they are prompted to take a course of action, a prompt. Now, with these three conditions in mind, motivation, ability, and prompt, think about your last Netflix binge. Or think about the last time you lost 45 minutes watching videos of hedgehogs wearing beanies on Instagram. Or women posing seductively on TikTok. Now, thanks to Fogg's work, digital interfaces are designed to lead people who are already predisposed to doing something, that is, watch another episode of your favorite show, down an irresistible path of doing so when prompted. Next episode, 15 seconds. In 2017, the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, boasted that their biggest competition was not Amazon or Fortnite. No, their biggest competition was sleep. Because that's the only thing that can take your attention. And so these budding entrepreneurs are taught in the persuasive design lab that the general principle to creating an app or a digital interface that will hook people is to, quote, put hot triggers, in the path of motivated people. Now renamed the Behavioral Design Lab, Fogg's team boasts a positive mission of helping people succeed and feel successful at doing what they already want to do. Now the problem with that, of course, is that what we already want to do is not necessarily good or good for us. I can't help but recall Paul's words in Romans. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do. But the very thing I hate, that is what I do. It's, it's this whole beautiful, honest description of how choosing to want the good is the central dilemma of human life right behind whether to have cake or abs. Now, I don't know too many people Who would say, look, what I really, really want out of this day, when I wake up in the morning and I think about all of the possibilities before me, what I really want is to spend two hours doom scrolling the news. Or uh, I want to look at other people's lives on Instagram so I can feel bad about my own. But the thing is, digital interfaces are designed to pull us away from wanting what we really want. They are made, in other words, to distract. And a central tenet of behavioral design is that our habits are constantly being shaped by incentives and rewards. These persuasive design inspired technology features like the like button or the retweet or those nagging red circle notifications or Instagram's infinite scroll and autoplay videos. They are designed to seduce us into using social media compulsively. So you might think, you know, like, oh, it'll only take me a couple of seconds to, to say yes to this friend request. But once you are interrupted, it takes an average of 25 minutes to get back to the task at hand. Now consider that on the other hand, it takes 23 minutes to get into a state of what people call flow at work. That is where your neuron bundles help you think faster, more effectively and more skillfully. So the question is like, how on earth do we get anything done with all of these distractions? I mean, like Skinner's Rats, we have been trained by these buzzing slot machines in our pockets to repeatedly check our apps in hopes of landing on a piece of unpredictable stimuli. You all know what it's like to have that itchy impulse to tap and swipe. Did I get a like? Did anyone like my photo? Anybody respond with a little heart to that gift that I sent? Oh, wait, what was that notification on my screen that popped up? Is it... Something from work notifying me that there's a problem with the supply chain that i got to go fix. Oh, maybe it was a kind word from a friend. Oh, maybe it's a breaking story about extremist violence in Pakistan. Maybe it's an email notifying me of a clearance sale on that cute hoodie that I saw that YouTube influencer wear. Only way to find out is to put in the quarter and pull the lever. You by now probably know the stats on cell phone usage. The average person checks their smartphone 144 times a day. Good news is that's down from what it was last year. 89% of people check it within the first 10 minutes of waking up. 60% sleep with their phones at night. 47% report feeling a sense of panic when your phone drops below 20%. 46% look at their phones while on a date. 42% look at them during a sermon at church. (laughs) Closer to 60%. 27% report doing it in the car, which means that only about 27% of people are honest. And we do this because... Thousands of Stanford grads, uh, uh, grads who are enticed by the economic incentives and brain hacks that they learned in the behavior lab, have decided to make a fortune by monetizing our infinite appetite for distraction. And you got to understand that it was not a neutral decision for them to do so. In a 2017 interview with Axios, Sean Parker, who uh, you may recall that name. He cut his teeth in tech by creating the digital file-sharing platform Napster, which you all used to like, burn Wu-Tang CDs back in the early 2000s. And Sugar Ray, if that's what you... Don't, don't pretend like you didn't do it. And burn them, You'd burn them and give them to your friends And you were wearing your frosty tips and your hair. Don't, don't act like you didn't do it. Uh, well, he went on to then become, you know, the, uh, the first president of Facebook. If you saw the movie, The Social Network, he was the one who's played by Justin Timberlake. And while, uh, while Parker, you know, was instrumental in the expansion and the monetization of Facebook and its early success, uh, he described himself in this interviewer as a conscientious objector to the tech empire that he helped create. These are his own words. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about, how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while, because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and more comments. It's a social validation feedback loop. Exactly the kind of thing a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. The inventors, creators, it's me, it's Mark Zuckerberg, it's Kevin Sistrom on Instagram. It's all these people. We understood this and we did this consciously. We did it anyway. (coughs) Another Silicon Valley insider turned whistleblower is a guy named uh, Tristan Harris, who, after graduating from Stanford's Persuasive Design Lab, went on to take a job as a design ethicist at Google before he became so disenchanted by an industry that he says had kicked off an arms race for people's attention. And he began a nonprofit whose sole purpose was to come up with a kind of Hippocratic oath for the tech industry, because as things stand, He said that most tech industry platforms are intentionally designed and engineered for distraction and addiction, because that is where the money is. Economists call it the attention economy. Years ago, Microsoft researcher Linda Stone declared that continuous partial attention was our new default setting in a wired world. One of Harris's buddies at Google uh, James Williams described the tech industry as the largest, most standardized, and most <coughs> centralized form of attention control in human history. And in an essay for the Royal Society of Arts, he expanded on that. He wrote this The proliferation of ubiquitous, and connected general purpose computers has enabled this infrastructure of industrialized persuasion to circumvent all other societal systems and open a door directly onto our attentional faculties, on which it now operates for over a third of our waking lives. In the hands of a few dozen people now lies the power to shape the attentional habits, the lives of billions of human beings. This is not a situation in which the essential political problem involves the management or censorship of speech. The total effect of these systems on our lives is not analogous to that of past communications media. And this is the kicker. The effect is much closer to that of a religion. It involves the installation of a worldview, the habituation into certain practices and values, the appeals to tribalistic impulses, the hypnotic abdication of reason and will, and the faith in omnipresent and seemingly omniscient forces that we trust without a sliver of verification to be on our side. And the thing is, if it is a religion, it is one that requires human sacrifice. Teenage depression has reached its highest levels on record. Uh, Over 55 academic studies thank you so much, draw a straight line from the advent of the smartphone to those rising rates of anxiety and depression. And they also note that there is a a massive loss of societal trust and polarization that is at its worst point since the Civil War, and a lot of this is because of filter bubbles and rage tweets. Now, it's not all doom and gloom, the internet. For instance, it also gives us pictures like this. You couldn't get that image out of your head earlier. When I said hedgehogs and with beanies, that's what I was talking about. True story. Created half of that picture with AI. Now here's the thing. Uh, Williams, Harris, and Parker, they're not the only tech defectors out there. Justin Rosenstein, Created the the like button for Facebook. He wishes that he hadn't done it. Chris Wetherill, who built Twitter's retweet function, finds himself up at night because he is worried about his role in streamlining a process that has unleashed a Pandora's box of misinformation online. And a growing number of industry leaders aware of what is going on in our conscious minds under the hood of these shiny applications that they have built have sworn off social media altogether. They don't let it into their homes. They are paying a lot of money to send their kids to tech-free schools. And all of this is to say that with the rise of social media empires and their persuasive algorithms, these powerful forces not only have the ability to shape what we think about, but how we think about them. And it happens every time we slide our thumb across our screens. Our attention has become a product for sale. And what we are presented innocently enough with as ads or as news feeds or as retweets, these random digital debris that come across our screens, are in reality a massive behavioral technique intentionally designed to influence how we feel What we believe, how we shop, how we vote, how we live. As the tech philosopher Jaron Lanier put it, what might have once been called advertising must now be understood as continuous behavior modification on a titanic scale. Our devices are shaping us constantly. The question is, what are they shaping us into? And so if we are going to follow Jesus by practicing simple living then we're going to have to take seriously the reality of our digital lives Now the challenge of course is that the Bible does not mention the smartphone. I Can't take you to Revelation 17 and say oh the woman riding the scarlet beast actually It's the Stanford Cardinal and the ten horns represent the ten social media empires I heard stranger things coming out of my grandma's church when I was a kid. But look, there's no command in the New Testament about turning off your notifications. There's no command, you know, or advice about how to make your smartphone into a dumb phone or whether or not you should be on social media. Paul does not tell the Philippians, you guys could really use a digital Sabbath. So you got to be careful here. But Paul, along with the other writers of the Bible, they do have a lot to say about how and where we direct our attention and the role that our attention plays in our spiritual formation. And Paul, for his part, in his last letter to an anxious congregation that was pulled every which way by the culture around them, he calls them to a different way of being in the world. And I think what he says is also a word for us in the contested space we live in. And so I want to have us take a look at it uh, together and just tease a few things out. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. He has to say it twice. We have to hear it twice. I, I like how the old King James Version put it. Be exceedingly glad. And the thing about this, bear in mind, Paul is writing this essentially from death row. He goes on to say, let your gentleness be evident to all. And this word gentleness can also be translated as reasonableness or moderateness. The, the basic idea is be a people who keep a level head when all of noise and the rhetoric and the ambient anxiety of your culture around you gets ratcheted up. Okay, well, how are we supposed to do that? The Lord is near. The kingdom of God is your present reality. You are a citizen of that kingdom. He's pointing to this orientation of the heart that happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits. Learning to rejoice takes practice. So then he goes on to say there are three ways, these three little Clusters of practices that he describes as a means of calibrating our heart toward the peace of the kingdom. And the first is pray. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer is this place where we constantly present our anxieties before the Lord. And when you pick those anxieties back up, prayer is the place where you take them again before the Lord. It is this place of sustained attention where you calibrate your desires so that the kingdom, its power, its glory, all the things that Jesus promises are, are near to you become available to you. And the promise within a heart that has become attuned to prayer is that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Now scholars believe that there was a uh, Roman garrison in the city of Philippi, and so this is the image that Paul is intentionally like using to get them to think about this. Uh, that God is standing like a sentinel that God is guarding your heart against the things that will shape or incline your heart away from peace. And this peace is a grace. It is a peace that is given through prayer. It's not something you can argue your way into. It's not something you can think your way into. It only comes through being next to the God who is near. Secondly, he says you can calibrate your hearts toward the kingdom by the things that you focus your mind upon where you give your attention. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think or ruminate or meditate upon or dwell in thought about such things. According to Paul, attention is the precursor to devotion. And we all know this, that as a general rule, if you slow down long enough to pay attention, which if you're like me is not all that often, attention to both God and to our life in this world, often it leads to awareness, because so often we are just sleepwalking a lot of the time. Awareness of how good God is, awareness of how good life is, uh, uh, even with all the pain and brokenness. Awareness of how good it is and beautiful it is before God. The the simple things of like having a meal with the people that you love. This awareness often leads to adoration. Meaning that the more attention we give to God and God's goodness this adoration begins to well up in us, just like it did for Paul. This is why he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. What we give our attention to has a way of indexing our heart toward that thing. And it can be either that which brings life or that which doesn't. It's a form of dwelling on the goodness of creation. Where we give our attention is how our love gets directed. I mean, think about your relationships, right? Um, When somebody gives you time, when somebody focuses their gaze upon you, when they give you attention, when they are with you, when they are present to you, when they are in conversation with you and giving you empathy, we experience that as love. That's how we receive it. And and the same is true for our relationship with God. If we spend time focusing on God, on beholding God, beholding us in love, this is how we experience God's love coming toward us. It is also how how we direct our love toward God. And the thing is, there is no shortage of ways to direct your mind toward God. Paul gives a laundry list of things to dwell on. And suffice it to say, whenever you see a list like this, this is just meant to kind of spur on your imagination. This is not an exhaustive thing. But in a world that is filled with anxiety, in a world that fills us with anxiety, thinking about what is true, what is noble, what is lovely, what is pure, what is admirable, well, this will draw your heart, the, the center and the source of your inner life, toward the center and source of all of life, which is Jesus and the kingdom he has come to bring. It is about training your mind to center on that which brings life. This is how we become shaped like Jesus. Attention is that portal of your spiritual formation where you give your attention is who you will become i I love how dallas willard puts it he says the first and most basic thing we can do and must do is to keep god before our minds this is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls our part in thus practicing the presence of god is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him and i love the honesty here In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But, and this is the good news, these are habits, not the law of gravity. And habits can be broken. I think of that line from Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me. And this idea that what you dwell on will direct your, your mind and your attention and your heart and you will become that, it's not just a religious platitude. Our brains consist of millions of neurons that are all connected. And when you repeat a thought or a pattern or a behavior, you form neuropathways that you can think of as kind of like an electrical shortcut for the uh, brain signals to, to more efficiently work. I mean, think of it like a, a cutting a trail through a forest. Uh, the first time, it's hard to get through. You've got to hack off a lot of branches. It's, it's tough sledding to get through that thing. But the more and more you step on a trail, the broader and more defined the trail becomes. The easier it is to recognize it, the easier it is to walk down that trail. And in the same way, the more that you have thoughts or patterns or habits or, or actions, the more these neural pathways in your brain get set, it, the easier it is to come back to them. Is that right? Okay. Professor of Neuroscience over there just got to make sure. Whatever it is that you repeatedly think about, it will shape you one way or another. What your thoughts dwell upon, that will be the thing that you worship. And that bodes really well for those whose minds are set on Jesus. It does not bode so well for those whose minds are set on the 24-7 news cycle your heart and your mind and your desires. Make no mistake, they will be dictated by where you give your attention. Think about such things, Paul counsels. Think about what is true, what is virtuous, what is good, whatever will move you toward the completion of what God has started in you. And then the third thing is, he finishes the thought with this, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So there it is. You put it into practice. It's not just about thinking about it. You've got to do something with it. So how do we take steps into a life of simplicity? By setting our minds on God. To move from theory to practice, as Paul puts it. Well, I think a good step in the right direction is to be honest about the things that rob our attention and direct it toward things that are less than God, things that steal your peace away from you. And the thing is, the things that will keep God ever before us are not likely to come from a system that is set to generate clicks and monetize either your attention or your anger. For most of us, we don't, like I said, we don't spend our days like thinking about how our attention can get robbed from us. We just get distracted. Justin Rosenstein, who I mentioned earlier, gives this really helpful definition of distraction. It's so simple. Distraction is where your intention and attention are not the same thing. And so our experiment for this week is to take stock of our digital lives and think about where we are prone to digital distraction and to come up with a scaffolding that will help turn our mind toward the things that are in alignment with the deepest longing of our hearts that orient our hearts and our minds toward the kingdom. To let your attention follow your intention, so to speak. A couple of things just before I wrap up. I wanna make clear that this does not belong in the category of law. This is in the category of wisdom. This is not a way to earn grace before God. Jesus has already accomplished that. It is a way, however, to arrange your life so that you can be more attuned to that grace that God has given. And I wanna be clear, because I know I come on really strong at the beginning of this, but I did so because I think the stakes are pretty high. You need to know I'm not anti-technology. Like, I, I remember doing, you know, cross-country road trips back in the day when I had an atlas and I had to change CDs. I promise you, Google Maps and an iPhone are way better. Internet, so useful. So I'm not some zealot who thinks that our lives would be better if we just, like, you know, moved out into the middle of nowhere and didn't have any technology in them. But at the same time, I am convinced that most of us will find it more possible to experience the presence and the peace of God by dwelling on what is good and beautiful and true if we were to find a way to resist the hypnotic pull that our devices have on us. I mean, I had to chuckle about this because on Friday, like here I am, right? Did head deep in thought about simplicity, preparing for this message. I mean, and I am in the zone. Things are just coming. Things are fl- flowing. I'm in that state. I mean, I'm like, ha-ha, hedgehogs. They're going to love that. <laughs> uh, and I'm thinking about how, you know, to arrange our lives to avoid the kind of economic excess of our culture that always wants us to buy more and more. And I get to that spot where I'm ready to take a break, stand up, walk around, get a sandwich, come back to it for another few hours. So before I do, I think, all right, This would be a good time since I'm going to take a break to check my email and, you know, make sure that, you know, see if anybody from the staff needs anything from me or anything like that, and then I can grab lunch. And as I'm getting ready to shut down my inbox, uh, there pops in this little ad from a company that I bought some shorts from once Uh, telling me that, like, new colors are in stock and they're 60% off. And I'm like, it's October. I don't need shorts. I don't need to click on that. Who's going to click on that? I'm not going to click on that. Click. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm there. I'm searching around the website, and I'm, like, adding things to my cart, And I'm like, oh, man, a lot of things are 60%. This is great. And before I know it, 20 minutes are gone in the middle of writing a sermon on digital distraction. <laughs> so all this is to say I am right here with you. So there are two main avenues of like getting into this experiment, into this practice in our community guide. One of them is to write a digital rule of life. And if that's language that is unfamiliar to you, don't think as in rules like plural, think rule singular. It comes from the Latin word regula, which means a a trellis or a scaffolding. And a practical place to start is to, to, if you wrote out your values last week, and you you took a look at your schedule and your spending as a way to kind of like organize your schedule and your resources around those things that you value, around those things that bring you into an awareness of and longing for the kingdom, then the experiment this week is simply to ask the question, to take that same intentional process and ask how do these aspects of technology actually support these values and which ones rob me from them? And to be sure, there are going to be some things that do. Like FaceTiming your friend who lives in Seattle is going to be way better than hopping onto a plane every time you want to talk to them. Now, if you don't have a community guide, uh, there we're up there, some quick bullet points of just some things that uh, you can peruse those at, at your own leisure. We'll just leave them up there until I'm, until I'm done in a minute here. And, and the thing is, that, like, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. Like, You're all in a different stage of life you all have your own things that you're gifted in you all have your own kind of routines it has to come out of whatever it is that you that you determine it has to come out of your own longing your own personality of who you are before God and who God is calling you to become in his kingdom and the thing is this is all invitation right this is not compulsion nobody is going to be checking up on you and asking like how you do it nobody's going to be spying in on your conversations Alexa might do it, but I will not do it, right? But the thing is, all of this has profound implications for our apprenticeship to Jesus and the life that he offers. This milieu of of addiction and distraction is robbing us of the ability to be present. Present to God. Present to others. Present to the goodness and beauty of the day. Present to our own souls. And the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom is that we are not consigned to live in a prison of external stimuli and response. All of us are welcome to live in the reality of the kingdom because Jesus is near. And because God is near, we can face the reality of our lives all of the things that might cause us to panic, all of the things that fill us with fear, we can turn our attention to him. We can wake up in the morning and say, I am living in the kingdom. And that is good news. Let us pray. Almighty God, help us to set our minds and our hearts on you. Help us to be present to you and When our minds wander a thousand different times, give us the trust that this is an invitation to return to you a thousand times. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.